I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours, I truly hope you're safe and sound. Uh, I'm Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions, at least for now, on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome both Halima Croft and Bernard Heichel to uh, the program for an in-depth discussion of Saudi Arabia, oil, and American foreign policy. Uh, you know them both, but quick intros are in order. Um, the inestimable Helen McCroft, who's graced this program before, is a managing director and the head of global, global commodity strategy in Middle East and North Africa research at RBC Markets. She specializes in geopolitics and energy, uh, leading a team of commodity strategists that cover energy metals, and cross-commodity investor activity. Halima, welcome back. Thank you. And Bernard Heichel, uh, Distinguished Professor of Near Eastern Studies and Director of the Institute for Transregional Study of the Contemporary Middle East and Princeton, at Princeton University, and author most recently of Saudi Arabian Transition. I've known and talked to Bernard over the years. I'm truly uh, pleased to welcome him, him today. Bernard? Welcome to Carnegie Connect. Thank you. I must say, today's session benefits both from your deep expertise uh, and from the reality of good timing. Today's conversation is literally nestled between yesterday's virtual and somewhat short, uh, Halima will be asking you about that, OPEC Plus meeting and an agreement uh, on a G7 Plus Australia price cap as well as an embargo on Russian seaborne oil, which I believe uh, the two of you can correct me, is due to take place today. It started, yes. It's already started. So a lot of uncertainties and a good deal to talk about, both in terms of the oil front and, of course, the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Before we talk about yesterday's OPEC meeting, though, I wonder if it might be instructive for our viewers and listeners to hit the rewind button for a minute and to get each of you to talk for a minute or so on the geopolitics and the oil strategy of the last one meeting uh, in October. That meeting, as we know, led to a production cup cut, uh, at least announced, of up to 2 million barrels and support for uh, Vladimir Putin. At least that's the way it was perceived in Washington. The fact that the Russian deputy prime minister, Halimi, you may know, know him, yes. currently under U.S. sanctions showed up at the meeting, uh, put a pretty fine point uh, on the message to Washington. And it, it was perceived, and this is what I want to talk to both of you about, uh, pun intended here, pun intended here, as, quote, my phrase, quote, crude diplomacy, unquote. So, um, Halima, to you first. Um, how would you explain the OPEC Plus decision briefly of last, uh, of, uh, of October? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. It's where you sit as your perspective on it, because many of us who sit in the financial markets, who, you know, spend all of our days, you know, looking at Bloomberg to see where the price of oil is moving. You know, when we had the OPEC meeting in September, you already had major market participants coming out and saying, OPEC really does need to do a more substantial cut because there's so many concerns in the market about demand weakness, concerns about aggressive red rate hike schedules, concerns about continuing COVID lockdowns. And so you had a situation, you know, going into that OPEC meeting where oil was really declining. It had fallen 20% since the summer highs. 
We had reached certain points in the market. I think we hit 82.66 for Brent. And many technicians were essentially saying that oil could essentially, Brent prices could break into the 70s unless there was a you know aggressive sort of circuit breaker put into the market to sort of change the dynamics of the market. And so one week before the meeting, we actually wrote a note where we basically said the market right now is in the midst of a macro sell-off. And we anticipated that OPEC would do potentially a substantial cut to try to reverse the momentum in the market. Now, that's not something Washington wanted, obviously. You know, the Biden administration, you know, had gone to Saudi Arabia. There had been an expectation that there would be OPEC production increases. But frankly, I think the writing was on the wall at the August OPEC meeting, just weeks after the Biden visit, where you only had 100,000 barrel a day collective OPEC increase. And then you had that September meeting where they reversed that. So if you were following the trend line in terms of OPEC and you, what you had seen in the market in terms of the price declining, I don't think a lot of market participants were necessarily surprised that OPEC took that action. But certainly in Washington, it was read very much through a political lens. It was viewed as aimed at the Biden administration. You had a you know, very, very tough response from Washington. There were moments when we thought actually that President Biden was signaling support for NOPEC legislation to be passed out of Congress. And I actually think the Saudis were taken a bit by surprise by the strength of the, the pushback from Washington. There have been disagreements between OPEC and Washington over production policy before. But the swiftness and the furiousness of the response, I think, even caught the Saudis off guard. The last thing I'll say before I hand it over to my favorite Saudi expert, Bernard Haeckel, is that, you know, I also, when people say, well, you know, Alexander Novak attended that meeting. Well, the Russian deputy prime minister is the co-chair of OPEC Plus. And so he was, as long as OPEC was going to be meeting, in person, as long as the Austrian government was going to permit Alexander Novak to show up at that meeting, he was going to show up at that meeting. Now, part of the reason I think they went virtual this time is they didn't want to have such a big story. I don't think they wanted the optics of the last meeting. But again, I think that we sort of miss it a little bit when we say it was designed to show support for Russia. I think it was designed to show support for their own fiscal balance sheets. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, I think the timing of the meeting weeks before the midterms, number one, whatever understandings the administration had reached, uh, perhaps not at the level of Secretary of State and oil minister, uh, or certainly not uh, uh, Crown Prince and President, whatever understandings they thought they had. Finally, the issue of Ukraine figures prominently and pervades just about everything. So, You'd have to, you'd have to, and by the way, the consequences, quote unquote, that the administration appeared to have said that 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 meeting was going to have, well, it's December, right? And I don't see any consequences. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. So, Bernard, let me ask you, um, Halima pretty well summed up the fact this was driven by market realities, not messaging to Washington, although that message in many respects was received loud and clear. Um, to you, what's your take? So, uh, you know, if you look at the situation from the Saudi perspective, the Biden administration was pushing for production increases going back to last fall. Uh, and this was five months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the Saudis, uh, looking at the Biden administration, felt that um, 
the ask was really about domestic U.S. politics uh, uh, because of the rising prices at the pump. They also felt that the U.S. was doing a couple of other things which were irritating to them as producers. The first, and I've written about this, by the way, uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the use of the SBR to, to affect price, the idea that the uh, that buyers could could set the price, that, that all like irritates the hell out of uh, the Saudis and OPEC generally, because this is a power that they've had and wielded since the early 1970s. So I think the actual differences are structural and not personal. Um, and the Saudis, and this comes from discussions I've had with Saudis, the Saudis are not willing to jeopardize their economic diversification development project uh, in order to help defeat Russia. That, I mean, they don't like uh, what Russia did, but that's not their war. And as far as consequences are concerned, I don't think the U.S. can do all that much. But the one consequence that we will see immediately of the souring of relations is that President Xi, Xi Jinping is arriving in Riyadh in two days, I believe. And you'll see a lot of... You no official confirmation yet of that visit. And that's been rumored now for months, but I suspect you may be right. Yeah. And I, and I suspect that he will be extremely well received. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into the issue of what constitutes a quote unquote ally, um, overlapping interests, coincidence of interest values. We'll get to that later. But I think you're quite right. I think the administration uh, and, and American Americans going forward are simply going to have to have a much more realistic view of what Saudi Arabia is prepared to do. Uh, with respect to this relationship, and it's going to end up being far more transactional, I suspect, um, than it's been over the decades. All right, so fast forward. You had a, did I hear, 20-minute OPEC meeting on virtually? No. 33 minutes. It was 33. Not the, sh not the shortest OPEC right, meeting. Right, no surprise. So, Halima, give us your take or the main takeaways. I think you've explained why it was a virtual meeting. What are the takeaways from this um, October, uh, sorry, December 4 meeting? I mean, I think the Saudis and the rest of OPEC are thinking the market is just too uncertain at the moment. I mean, I think they did not want the optics of everybody going to Vienna, wall-to-wall -wall press coverage, having the Russian deputy prime minister, you know, in the building when there's so much uncertainty about what they should do in terms of policy, because you have this, you know, still concern about aggressive rate hikes from, you know, the Fed. We do not know when China may lift COVID restrictions. And on the other side of that, we now have the first major sanctions being implemented against Russia and oil since the start of the war. And so if you are having to figure out how to gauge your policy, these are really important issues that you don't know how to solve for right now. And I certainly think that having the OPEC meeting the day before the launch of the EU six package of sanctions, plus the G7 price cap plan, that was not something that they wanted to basically front run. I think they are going to wait to see in terms of any production adjustment, how these factors play out. So I would not be surprised, you know, come January or February, if you do have a material Russian disruption, certainly you're going to have increasing asks by European nations to get more oil from Middle Eastern producers as they essentially wean themselves off entirely off of Russian oil, except for some pipeline imports to landlocked countries. And so if you do have a major, major hole that needs to be filled, and we're going to have to wait and see if Russia makes good on its threats to cut off oil supply to countries that pay at the cap or below. But I do think that would be the kind of moment where they would potentially come back in with a production 
increase. Um, the question is, of course, if trends, if demand becomes again the, the big concern in the market, if they decide to do you know lockdowns for another six months, again we have to look at what happens at the Fed. They do reserve the right to cut production as well. And I mean, the issue that Professor Haeckel raises, I mean, for them, this is their economic lifeblood. I mean, oil is the funding mechanism. It is the ATM for the diversification goals. It fuels the neon dreams. And I think one of the problems in this relationship and the run up to the October meeting is, I simply think that Washington and Riyadh had a potentially different price point in terms of what their target was. Washington is very focused on you know, keeping retail gasoline prices below $4 a gallon. On the other side, Riyadh is very focused on funding Vision 2030. And the question is, were they aligned on the price target? I think the answer, we know the answer to that. No. But, yeah, exactly. So, but let me ask, before we get to, to, to Bernard's take on this, there were reports, am I correct, uh, weeks of leading to this meeting that there might have been a consideration of production increase and then a flurry of meetings and reports that the Saudi oil minister was running around. Were there differences within OPEC? Did the Emiratis want or the Iraqis want a, an increase in production? Was that? For, for this meeting or the October meeting? This meeting, um, this, one. this meeting, yeah, you had a Wall Street Journal article saying that they were considering a 500,000 barrel a day increase. What was really striking was how quickly the response from the kingdom was sort of pushing back on that with an official statement, phone calls being made. And then you had a number of other OPEC ministers essentially saying, no, we are not considering a price, I mean, a production increase. Now, the reason why people were thinking that could be credible, why I think we saw markets fall off that day, not just because it was written by the Wall Street Journal, but people were wondering whether decision to grant the crown prince sovereign immunity was somehow a quid pro quo trade. And so I think that's why you saw from the Ministry of Energy a very quick response saying the Wall Street Journal story does not have legs because they were watching the market reaction. I mean, oil sold off significantly that day because people were wondering whether there was some sort of secret deal for more oil. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the immunity issue, I think the lawyers, frankly, won out, is my understanding. And I'm not sure the administration, frankly, much to my dismay, I might add, had any other option other than to uh, to do that. But let me turn to Bernard on two two points. One, your initial takeaway uh, from the meeting yesterday. Number two, I know OPEC Plus is a consensus organization, but here's my question, actually, to both of you. But Bernard, to you first. Who drives the train in OPEC when it comes to these sorts of critical decisions, increase, decrease, flatline, to both of you? But Bernard, first, quick takeaway on the meeting on Sunday. I mean, there there are two questions there. One is OPEC. So it, when it comes to OPEC, I think, uh, and Halima, of course, could correct me on, on this. Um, it's, a, it's a phone call between <clears throat> the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and the uh, ruler of the UAE that typically, you know, happens at the last minute. And, and, and that's what, okay. So now when it comes to OPEC plus, then you have to include Russia in, in, in the equation. I mean, that's a kind of simple answer. One, if I may add one, one other thing about the October meeting, which I think was often missed. And my, my understanding is that, you know, Saudi Aramco sets the price of the barrel a month in advance. And that happens, I think on the fifth of every month, Halima can correct me. Um, the 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 October meeting uh, happened at the, at the same time, 
and the Saudis kept the same price for November. In other words, the Saudis were signaling to Biden that they're not going to increase the price because of the nine hundred, the two million, but actually closer to nine hundred thousand barrel cut. So that was a signal of support, right? That we're not politicizing this. You know, Aaron, I want to pick up on it because I, I know it underlying your question because there had been reports right after the October meeting that somehow the Saudis coerced Iraq and UAE into going along. I mean, I was actually at that meeting. And what struck me was the night before the meeting, I've gone to meetings before where there's actually been a lot of dispute. I've been at meetings before where ministers have walked out. Typically, the Iranian delegation was famous for walking out. But like the Angolans will walk out. And then you go to another day. And what we didn't have this time was any sense the night before the meeting that there were major divisions between the producers. So whatever had to be worked out had been worked out well before that meeting happened. And on the day of that meeting, it was a pretty straightforward, the drama came once the decision was announced, at least in the 48 hours before that meeting, there wasn't a lot of sense of disunity. And again, I've been at these meetings where they've gone an extra day. And when you bring up the UAE, it's really important because we had had a situation where the UAE, you know, the summer before had decided they did not agree with the production benchmarks. And we had 17 days where we did not actually get a decision. And so when the UAE wants to raise an issue, they have held the line before. And so to me, what struck me about this meeting was at least being in Vienna, there was not a sense that there were major divisions. Whatever dispute had happened over the production policy had been worked out before they got to Vienna. Got it. Okay, so before we get to my favorite subject, the geopolitics and the U.S.-Saudi relationship, um, Halima, I wonder, let me turn to you first. Can you give us a kind of Cliff Notes uh, 101 course on the two issues uh, that this Carnegie Mix is sort of sandwiched between. One is the price cap, okay? And the other is the oil embargo on seaborne Russian oil. I gather from my layman's understanding that the, the objective is set the price on the cap now uh, high enough over the cost of actually extracting oil so that the Russians keep selling, but low enough so their profits, let me use the word, uh, not damaged. Clearly, they are not going to be damaged, but their profits are dented. So what, what is, is this a real price cap or is this just a restriction on insurance and shipping companies? What, 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 what's, the, what's the point here? We need to go back six months ago because six months ago, the European Union did the sixth package of sanctions, which included an embargo on seaborne oil into Europe. There was the Germans and the Poles also came out and said that they would by year end phase out pipeline imports. Several landlocked European countries like most notably Hungary got an exemption to continue taking pipeline imports. But the other component of the six package of sanctions was a ban on the provision of services to move Russian barrels to third countries. So India, which has essentially been the country that has backed up the truck and taken the discounted Russian barrels, India would find it very difficult to continue importing Russian oil, even at current levels, without access to you know, Europe, Western ships, Western insurance, particularly insurance is the critical issue. I mean, 
Europe and the UK, it's like 95% of the insurance market comes, it's basically from the UK and from Europe. And so what happened when these sanctions were announced six months ago is it sparked real concern in Washington that you could have not just a situation where Russian barrels were no longer going to Europe, but that you would see a significant number of Russian barrels move off the market, that the services ban would essentially act as a secondary sanction. And so there was real concern that you would see a spike in oil prices simply because you'd be losing potentially you know, several million barrels of Russian oil off the market. Hence, the price cap. And the price cap is designed to allow service providers to continue moving Russian barrels, Western, as long as the purchaser attests to the fact that they are paying at the cap or below. Now they set $60, but this is a, this is a price where it is higher than where euros, the main Russian crude grade is selling now. And it is, you know, but it is potentially high, you know, it's, it's not, you know, setting it at, you know, Brent prices, which is, you know, now $87, it's 60, but Russia's already been having to take a discount. And so the question is, is this largely an effort, which I think it is, to keep Russian barrels on the market and frankly, prevent a price spike and the loss of Western support for the war? But is it really denting Russian finances is the other issue. Right. The answer, I think, is <laughs> it seems to be no. I mean, and that's certainly what the polls were saying. That that was the point made by Poland, the Baltic states, and Zelensky, who wanted a thirty dollars. Right. Those are the ones, obviously, who want a tougher policy against Russia by the Greeks and the Cypriots, uh, obviously, who have a vested interest in insurance and particularly shipping, wanted uh, wanted a higher price. But you know, the Russians are going to make more from energy profits this year than they did in 2021. So the, the notion that this is designed to somehow punish Russia just seems to me it's it, it's it's not going to do that. Well, the architects would say, importantly, that it's, they're, they're hoping it caps the upside, that Russia cannot benefit from a you know, windfall from, from a spike in oil prices. But again, I think what's not said, which I think is the really important point, is the question about if you had a real energy crisis because of the loss of Russian oil, would you potentially lose public support in the West for the war? And I do think that is something, at least when you talk to the Europeans, there is this real concern about, can you maintain, I mean, Europe is facing, you know, very high electricity prices. You have, you know, potential discussion about deindustrialization of Europe because of gas prices, gas, you know, natural gas. Can you maintain public support? And so that's how I'm hearing this message saying, look, this is not necessarily going to hurt Putin's bottom line, but it's important to try to stave off an energy crisis that leads European populations against the war. Bernard? I just think it, it, for it formalizes an existing arrangement where the Russians are getting a, a discount. Um, so it's a lot of virtue signaling. But I agree with Halima that it's trying to also keep the Europeans uh, on side. Uh, population, that is. I, I think, though, the, the, the real issue when looking at the oil market, and again, Halima will correct me because she's my favorite uh, oil person, um, is China. You know, is China's um, um, demand going to rebound uh, if they, um, you know, uh, if, if their COVID lockdown policy changes? And if we see a huge jump in demand, 
what what that will mean for Russia, what that will mean for other producers. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. I might add that's that Chinese factor. I think is about sixteen percent of world oil consumption. That's pretty pretty remarkable uh, to both of you. Uh, the Russian, at least, preliminary statements seem to suggest that we're not going to sell oil to anybody, anybody who plays this price cap game. Do either of you believe that that is real? And as a consequence, are we going to lose? Uh, as many as a million, million and a half barrels, barrels a day as a consequence of this? I mean, Halima? I actually think we could initially lose, you know, a million or a million and a half barrel initially as shipping firms, trading houses try to parse this legislation because we only got the cap on Friday, basically less than 72 hours before the launch of the plan. They were formalizing all the remaining work on this over the weekend. And so there's also the concern that you could simply have the lawyers and the compliance departments leading with no while they try to figure out whether they can participate in this trade. Remember in the early days of the war, remember we did have this initial buyer strike where you had trading houses and you know energy companies and shippers all say, we're gonna pull back from doing business with Russia we try to figure out the sanctions on the central bank, the disconnection of Russian banks and SWIFT payments. They didn't understand yet what the energy carve-out exemptions meant. And you had Russian oil come off the market. It rebounded, particularly because of India. The question is now, are you going to have some initial dislocation while people figure it out before we even get to the issue of, does Russia withhold supplies? Now, the Treasury Department, the White House will say, Russia is financially incentivized to sell at 60 because that's just seaborne. They can continue to pipe to China and whatever they can you know, get from the Chinese from that. But that this is the only revenue they have basically at this point to fund the war. And they're going to continue to sell regardless of their statements. But if you look at the Russians and what they have done, look what they've done on natural gas. Now, yes, they earn far more money on oil than natural gas. Natural gas has always been the weapon of choice, but they did make good on their threats. Remember they said, if you're not going to pay in rubles, we're going to cut you off. And initially everyone said, we're not going to pay in rubles. Well, they did a couple selective cutoffs and then everyone came up with a workaround arrangement with this special K account at the Gazprom Bank and they tried to pay in rubles. They've been cut off still, but the question is, will Russia do selective cutoff to try to drive up the price of oil? I think that that is something we at least have to think is a credible risk not that they go to zero, obviously, but they do some selective cutoffs to try to push some of the pain back onto the West and try to create a winter of discontent. All right, Bernard, a thought on this? So my my worry, you know, my worry about Russia is, uh, f- firstly, I mean, we need Russian barrels to maintain uh, the global economy and without going into a major recession. That's just a fact of life. They're just too big. 
in 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 the in the global energy market. The, the second point I would say, and what particularly worries me, is um, not so much Russia not being able to sell its oil, but let's say they need a spare part that they can only get from the West, and which they can no longer get because of sanctions. And then Russian production collapses uh, because they don't have the right turbine or they don't have the right pump or what have you. Then we could really face a very serious energy crisis. The Europeans would immediately feel it, but we would all feel it. Um, so so that that's, you know, that's those are the kinds of things that I, I don't know whether they've ever they've really been thought through by, uh, you know, people in D.C. and people in Europe. Well, I think uncertainty is going to prevail. One of my favorite oil analysts months ago, I think, suggested that wouldn't it be interesting if the Saudis would then step up? Um, to replace, but they can't make up. But they can't make up Russian production. I mean, the Saudis can only step up, uh, you know, up to a small point. Right. And forgive me for my naivete, but I just it was just a thought. And somebody that I know and respect on this issue actually put it forward as a credible possibility. All right. So let actually that that is. Let me just quickly take that because because actually I did ask um, the Saudi oil minister at the FII. You know, would you pretend, would you look to backfill Europe? And he did say, you know, on a number of occasions, he pointed to what happened during the first Gulf War, that they increased production, talked about what happened during the Arab Spring with Libya. And so I do think that we should expect to see, and Saudi, you know, exports to Europe have increased, same with Emirati and Iraqi barrels. I think we will see, you know, further movement of barrels if there is, you know, significant shortages. But the, just the question is volumetrically, like, if you're losing, you know, several million barrels of Russian oil, that becomes a hole that's just too challenging for anybody to fill, given where we are spare right. capacity. Okay, so let's turn to uh, Saudi Arabia internal and the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, I, you know, I, I was thinking this morning, um, I, I want to introduce the subject as uh, what are both of your views on MBS in Saudi Arabia? And I, and I thought to myself, why am I using the term MBS in Saudi Arabia? I, it, over a quarter of a century, when I was working at the Department of State, we dealt with a succession of Saudi kings that came and went. Um, and I'm not sure I would ever apply that characterization to Saudi Arabia. Um, both of you have had a fair amount of contact with Saudi officials. Bernard, you with, uh, with the crown prince. Halimi, you with, uh, I think it's his half-brother, if I got that right. So I just wonder, um, and again, I'll, I'll say, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not an objective observer on these matters. I mean, there are American interests and then there are Saudi interests. And frankly, they, in my judgment, they are sort of diverging in ways that they've never uh, diverged before. We'll get to that in a sec. But I, I, some, some clarity, Bernard, to you first. Is the image of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, a.k.a. MBS, as a extraordinary extraordinary reformer, but as a ruthless, repressive authoritarian who has emerged as a serial human rights abuser within Saudi Arabia, and is also engaged in, if you believe Freedom House, and I do, a campaign of transnational uh, re repression and rendition, an effort to in intimidate Saudis living abroad. Is that a fair characterization? Extraordinary reformer, bringing change to Saudi Arabia it's never experienced before. But the other half of the coin, which from American, uh, an American perspective needs to be integrated, I would argue, 
into our policy towards Saudi Arabia. Is that a fair characterization or, or am I showing my fundamental bias here? There's no question that he's an authoritarian. And, uh, you know, your initial question was, is this MBS is Saudi Arabia? I think that he's unlike any of the previous rulers, except for the founder, the founding king. So, so you know, when, when you talk about Saudi Arabia, you know, Sa- Ibn Saud Saudi Arabia, you know, you can't say that because you radically changed the place. I think MBS is involved in something, you know, not quite as, comp- you know, almost as comparable as what the founder did. Uh, in in a couple of ways. One, he's centralizing power in a way that you know never was the case before, um, and he is transforming the country. He's moving the country essentially away from a country where the legitimacy is based on a particular interpretation of Islam and and the use of Islamism as as the kind of basis for the it, the country's influence and power uh, to nationalism. He is a populist nationalist. And he has 70% of the population, the youth, who, are, who think he's a rock star, uh, r- despite all the repression. Uh, and, the people, and the people who are slightly older, who are beneficiaries of the old system, d- don't like him because he's taking away their privileges and taking away their entitlements. So, you know, all politics are local, ultimately. And what he's doing domestically is, uh, whether we like it or not, hugely popular with the bulk of the population simply because the demographics are young and are with him. Halima? I think, you know, the point that, you know, Professor Haeckel made about the young population and that his base of support. I mean, one of the things that really has struck me, you know, I've been going to Saudi again, I deal on the energy side, um, you know, Bernard Haeckel much further in terms of his range of contacts, but, you know, I, I've been going for 16 years. And to me, I, I think about when I first went to the oil ministry and, you know, there was there was no women's room for me to use in the ministry. It was, you know, older. It was, you know, you felt like, you know, everyone was over 50 there. I mean, I've been really struck by, you know, regardless of all the other issues you've raised, I've been very struck by when, when you go to the ministry now, who sits in that ministry? I mean, if you are above the age of 40, you know, you are in the distinct minority. You have a lot of, you know, young women. I, I've seen particularly on the issue of women's role in the economy, access to education. I mean, they have been, in terms of economic beneficiaries, they are really sort of taking advantage of the liberalization. And again, now you would go to something like the Ministry of Energy and you would think you were in a, a tech company. And so I do, I have been very struck by just the pace of change in the sector that I cover. And to me, that is really interesting because one of the issues that we face oftentimes in the United States is we think about the energy industry and it's like, how are you going to attract young people to want to work in this industry when we think about the real focus on net zero and climate change. To me, it's very striking, at least in the sector I cover when I go to Saudi Arabia, how much they've really changed the demographics of who sits in something like the Ministry of Energy. Um, I'm still left a bit, a bit uneasy, though. I mean, I, 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 I worked to, to stri- strive to sort of propagate American interests. Uh, in in this region, and uh, even though I don't think there's an administration, and I worked for half a dozen who put human rights at the top of of the list, any administration I've ever worked for, from the Carter administration to Bush forty three, made human rights a fundamental priority for the United States. Various times there were initiatives. How do we how do we balance? You are both Saudi watchers. You. You have professional uh, um, 
professional career in dealing with Saudi Arabia, you travel there frequently. How do we reconcile this ethically, emotionally, and then from the standpoint of U.S. policy? Because this this problem is not going away. This is this man is going to ultimately become king of Saudi Arabia and may rule the country for half a century. So this is not a headline, uh, Bernard and Halima. This is a trend line. How do we reconcile this? If you think about when the Biden administration came into office, I don't think they ever thought they were going to be having to make phone calls to Saudi Arabia or to be lobbying OPEC in terms of production policy. It was an administration that came in. We were coming off of you know, a tremendous collapse in oil prices in 2020 because of the pandemic, the biggest collapse in oil prices. Remember, oil went negative. When they came into office, they were very focused on climate initiatives, and they were not particularly concerned about rising energy prices. And then we got hit with this economic reopening. We got hit with a lack of, you know, production because of, you know, investment had come out of the sector. And even before the war in Ukraine, you know, we had had an SPR release, you know, when oil prices, you know, were in the 70s. So I think what happened or one of the, the driving factors, it's really, you know, gotten to, you know, where you are in terms of saying, you know, why are we so focused on human rights for this administration that came in talking about human rights? I think they got stuck in an energy crisis that they basically had to try to manage. And so when you are stuck with an energy crisis and you need additional barrels, you know, U.S. production, you know, has been, we're not going back to that 13 million right now. I mean, we have, we've had, you know, investment come out of the sector. And so they had to make, and the U.S., does not sit on spare capacity. So they found themselves having to make asks that I would say they were not anticipating they would have to do so. Uh, okay, Bernard, to you. That, that balance between interests and human rights and values is a difficult one to manage almost anywhere uh, in the world. Um, you know, we have a very close relationship with Prime Minister Modi. He's hardly, you know, a paragon of human rights um, uh, and, and values that we care about, especially when you think about how Muslims are treated there. Um, you know, Sisi in Egypt and elsewhere, Israel, as you've pointed out in many of your own writings. Um, so I don't see why Saudi Arabia should be this uniquely kind of, uh, you know, different from all these other countries. Uh, I find that um, in my dealings with the Saudis, that if you go uh, and talk to them privately, on questions of human rights and the release of prisoners and so on, it's much more effective. Uh, I, I, you know, I was involved in a couple of those cases, and and the people were released. Um, so uh, the other is to keep your eye on the ball as to why this country is important. Look, it's the center of the Muslim world. It's the most important country when it comes to oil production, and it shares, you know, our concern for stability in the region and for containing forces like those of the mullahs in Iran. So you know, there. The ledger is, you know, uh, full on, you know, on both sides, and one has to keep this, keep keep the balance between them. I think, though, that again, I've, uh, the first book I ever wrote was on the origins of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I followed this not as closely as the two of you have, um, and there is this notion, though, and as how how to relate and to conceptualize the countries that we that we deal with. Um, is Saudi Arabia has been referred to as an ally of the United States. And I would argue that an ally of the United States, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, Britain, Canada, Australia, are countries where there is a high coincidence of both interests on one hand 
and values on the other, high coincidence, and a strong, sustainable domestic base of support. Because in a democracy, obviously, as in authoritarian countries as well, public opinion in a democracy plays a more critical role. So I guess the question is, high coincidence of values with respect to the U.S.-Saudi, no. High coincidence of interest, and this is where I, I need your opinion. If you look at human rights, if you look at relations with Russia, if you look at relations with China, if you look at well, we are not competitors with Saudi Arabia in a way that I think, only correct me if I'm wrong, we've never been before. So if, in fact, our coincidence of interest is largely episodic and there's no coincidence of values, how then do we relate to a country? Um, and again, full disclosure, Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of mine. Um, this, to me, is a, a major problem, um, and it continues. Saudi, Saudi human rights violations continue. How do we relate to Saudi Arabia? What is it? Is it an ally? Is it a problematic partner? Is it a frenemy? Because this problem is, this is going forward, this is, we're going to have to deal with Saudi Arabia and MBS for a long time to come. And I guess that's my question to you. Do we simply have to reframe our own analysis and say to ourselves, you know, this country, what a surprise, is acting in its own interests. It's not doing this for any favors for the United States. There's no value coincidence. It's an authoritarian country, much more in common with President Xi is showing up. There's a strong uh, Saudi relationship with other authoritarians at a time when the United States is presenting itself as a arsenal of democracy as we back Ukraine against Russia. How do we, in the end, final comment from both of you, you both have tremendous authority and expertise on this issue. How do we look at Saudi Arabia? Problematic partner? Ally? Frenemy? How? Halima, to you. I'm going to start on energy and I'm going to, I'm going to hand over the broader question to, to Professor Haeckel. But I do think when we think about energy and the energy relationship. I also have to think we have to be really honest about what is our priority. Because again, what has struck me is that we have very much a focus now on retail gasoline prices cannot be above $4 a gallon. Like that is, that was a clear point that was made. And clearly, you know, we are very still focused, look at the Inflation Reduction Act on pushing forward with our climate agenda. But if those two things have to be, if, if you cannot tell, have an honest conversation with American consumers about demand, I mean, think about the whole conversation was, we need additional supply and we're not asking Americans to put on a sweater. We're not really having conversations about how we ratchet down demand. Then we are going to, in this transition, because transitioning you know, to net zero does not mean ending dependence in the near term on oil, we're going to still need, if we are concerned about higher energy costs, if we have decided that US consumers are gonna to continue to have to hopefully, pay, if we want them to pay below $4 a gallon or God forbid below $5 a gallon, we're gonna still have to have these conversations with the producing countries. And I would say like, who's gonna to continue to invest in the upstream sector? Who's gonna make those investments in conventional oil and gas? It's gonna be these Middle Eastern producers. They are the low cost producers. 
And so I think we have to be really realistic in terms of our economic priorities about where that oil is going to come from. And again, we can have conversations about ratcheting down demand in this country. But if we're not going to have those conversations, then we're going to be picking up that phone call. I'm looking out in my driveway right now. I'm looking at two Honda CRV uh, SUVs and wondering uh, why I'm driving them. Lessening demand is pretty important. It may actually be an answer to my question. Bernard. You know, I would add to what Halima says that, you know, the Saudis have the cheapest and cleanest, in quotes, and in terms of methane emissions, you know, cleanest oil in the world. So we're going to become more and more dependent on them as we transition, not less. Um, as far as the earlier question, look, the United States, you know, committed a violent and illegal war in Iraq. So we have to be a bit careful how we preach uh, in this part of the world. Um, the other thing I would say as far as the Saudis are concerned is that, you know, in the war against communism during the Cold War, in the war against radical Islamism, Saudi Arabia was a huge ally and partner. Um, I don't see why. It's not an episodic thing. There are long-term trends that we care about, stability, oil market balancing, um, and, you know, energy security, uh, peace with Israel. All of these things really matter to us, and Saudi is a key to all of those. So I think we can build a relationship and eventually become friends, closer friends. Is it Denmark? No, it will never be Denmark. And we have to accept that. Right. Uh, I'm thinking, though, again, going forward, we're gonna, we need to change our own mindset and our own view. Uh, my own view, and I've, I've uh, believed this for years, that the default position for administrations I've worked for is that unlike Lehman Brothers, the U.S.-Saudi relationship is still viewed in Washington. It's too big, too consequential, and too important to be allowed to fail. So whatever my personal views, uh, I'm not sure we're going to impose, quote unquote, consequences for the things we don't like that the Saudis are doing. But let me thank both of you. Halima, uh, as always, Bernard, thank you so much. Your deep uh, experience and authority uh, on these matters was on display. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, as I close these sessions, be sure to think positive and test negative. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.